Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson this morning comes from Ruth chapter 4. As you open up your Bibles or your devices to Ruth chapter 4, let me just give you a short recap of where we've been. We've been in a sermon series walking through the book of Ruth called Redeemed. In the first week, we looked at how God redeems us from emptiness. Second week, how God redeems us from bitterness. He redeems us from purposelessness. And last week, you looked at how God redeems us from risk to ourselves and redeems us for risk in our life, knowing that we live in Christ and Christ in us, that God who has worked out our eternal future also cares for our present life as well. Today, we're looking at how God redeems us from ourselves. Yes, you heard that right, how God even redeems us from ourselves and our efforts. This is Ruth chapter four. I'm gonna actually back it up and read the last three verses of Ruth chapter three to set some context for us as well. Then we'll get into Ruth four, the first 12 verses. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders from the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That's Naomi's husband. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to redeem it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, well, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. 
Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May God the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous among in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The most beautiful wedding. That was the title of a YouTube video that my wife recently shared with me. The most beautiful wedding. You know what? The title was right. The couple that was getting married, they were objectively beautiful people. They were wearing the most beautiful clothes, they and their entire wedding party, all of them dressed beautifully. They were at the most beautiful location, and of course, they had beautiful weather. The table decorations, beautiful. The lighting in the video, the lighting at the wedding, beautiful. Everything about it was absolutely beautiful. The title was right. The YouTube video was correct. It was one of the most beautiful weddings that could ever be. It was exactly what romantic hearts think and picture in fairy tale weddings. If YouTube was around in 1200 BC, I wonder what title it would give for Boaz and Ruth's wedding video. Because that's what we have here. We have a wedding. We have a marriage going on. Do not mistake it for, well, too much else. Look at your Bibles. In English, most English translations have the heading, Boaz marries Ruth. It's their wedding. I wonder what title they'd give. Maybe the most bland wedding ever? Or maybe, maybe something different. Maybe it would be the most confusing wedding ever. Because after all, yes, it's a wedding going on here, but it's also a legal court ruling going on here. So, so maybe that's it. Maybe it's the most contractual wedding ever. Or maybe it's just the most confusing one ever. Because I don't know about you, unless you're a lawyer, maybe like most legal proceedings, there's an element of confusion about what's going on here. So can I break it down for you? And, and I'm really asking that question. Can I, can I please explain to you what's going on here? Can I take off my pastor hat and, and try to put on a lawyer hat here for a second? 
And I'm asking because I don't want to see your eyes gloss over and just ignore this part because there's something here. Through the Holy Spirit, including these details in Scripture, he's telling us something. He's telling us something that we, we should appreciate, we, we can appreciate, and more importantly, through faith, we can appropriate to ourselves. So can I share with you the details of what's going on here? I got to back it up to Ruth chapter 3, first of all. And there, in Ruth chapter 3, if you'll remember, what Ruth does is she asks Boaz to be her guardian redeemer. In chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth said, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This was, in essence, a marriage proposal. Ruth proposing marriage to Boaz. And yet, it's also a legal appeal. Let's back it up a little more to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. There in verse 25, this is what the Old Testament law that God instituted for his people Israel said. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of your property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. You see, what God did is he set up a law. He set up a law in Old Testament Israel that guarded and protected widows and those who were disenfranchised. What would happen was because land property and land rights was passed on through the male head of the household, those who, who had no males in their family were in danger of losing their land, in danger of losing their livelihood, in danger of losing their source of security, their source of food. And so God set up a law that would protect them. What would happen is if they had no males in the family, like Naomi, like Ruth, the nearest relative, the guardian redeemer, had an obligation. The obligation was to buy back the land, pay off their debt, so that they could live securely and have their land and, and reap what came from their land. That's the first detail that I need to share with you about what's going on. There's one twist. While Boaz was a close relative, he wasn't the closest. Fast forward again to Ruth chapter 3, where Ruth makes this legal appeal, this marriage proposal to Boaz. And Boaz says, although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. All right, so there's the second detail. Boaz is a guardian redeemer, but he's not the closest one. He knows of another one, another one in their distant family who had the obligation, who had the legal right to step in and buy this land. That's why he, in essence, first turned down Ruth's appeal and her proposal, saying only if he doesn't do it, will I step in and do it. You with me so far? All right, one more twist, one more legal detail. We got to jump back to Leviticus for this one. There, the Lord gives another law for Old Testament Israel. God says, what was sold 
will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. Let me tell you about the year of Jubilee. It happened every 50 years. Every 50 years, the Lord declared that it was a special year in Israel where all of the land that was lost for debt or because there was no male in the household would be returned to the family that had to sell it off. That meant in this situation that Ruth and Naomi would get their land back at the 50-year mark if there was a male in the family. But if there was not a male in the family, then it would just remain with whoever purchased it. There would be no land for Ruth, for Naomi, if there was no male, even at the year of Jubilee. They would be forgotten forever. Their name, the family name, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, it would be wiped out. So this is the details. These are all the details. Details, details, details. You with me? That went into the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. All right, so that's where we pick it up at the beginning of Ruth 4. Ruth is at her mother-in-law's home explaining to her what happened. And meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, the nearer relative he had talked about, came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to it except you and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. You see what's going on here? The closer redeemer, the guardian redeemer, is listening to everything that Boaz is explaining, and he knows the law. He knows the law in Old Testament Israel. He knows about the law of the near redeemer. He knows about the year of Jubilee, and he's doing the math. This is a win-win. I get to buy this land now from Naomi. I pay a small price for it because I'm the only one who has legal rights to it. I get to look like a redeemer, a hero. In the presence of my people, Israel, I get to redeem this land that belonged to Elimelech from Naomi. And Naomi's old. She's not having any kids. Ruth is a foreigner. She's not married. There's no sons coming to this family. So guess what? I'm going to get to keep this land. Even at the year of Jubilee, I'm going to get to take this property and have it as a part of my estate, even after the year of Jubilee, forever and always. This will remain in my family. Hmm, will I do this deal? Uh, yes. Yes, I will. Until <laughs> Boaz drops a bomb on him. Boaz says this. He says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, 
the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Do you see what happened? While at first, the near redeemer, this guy looks and goes, yeah, well, of course I'll have this land. There's another law presented here, another legal obligation that Boaz quite cleverly brings up. Part of being the near redeemer, the closest male relative to a widow who lost their spouse, was this. If you were able, you were obligated to have a child with this woman, to marry her, and if you produced a male heir with her, that male, that baby boy, would in essence first take the name of the dead woman's husband. And then that baby boy would get the land. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. No year of jubilee. You're no longer the closest male heir. The land, Ruth, Naomi, Elimelech, Malon's land, would go to that baby boy. And you know what else that baby boy would get? That baby boy would not only have the name of Elimelech and Malon, it would also have this near redeemer's name. So this baby boy would not only get Ruth's land, but it would also get his land. In other words, this was no longer a win-win for this gentleman. And he was doing the math. He was looking at it and he was saying, wait a second, I'm going to divide up my land? My land will no longer go to my potential heirs only? And for what? A dead man? For a foreigner? For an immigrant? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's why this dude bails. He says he's out. At this, he's, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself for I cannot do it. And here we have one of the main points of this scripture. Here we have one of the main points that God is trying to tell us of in this scripture with all the legal details included. That the law is easy to keep when it benefits us. The law of God is easy to keep when it benefits us, when it helps us. I mean, just look at this nearer relative, this near redeemer. Of course he was going to fulfill God's law. Of course he was going to keep it. Of course he was going to do whatever it said when it benefited him. But the moment it didn't, then what? You see, when the law is impossible to keep, well, then it burdens us. The moment that this law was in some way a burden to him and didn't help him out, he was done. He was out. Therefore, according to the law, according to what God's law said, there was no redemption. This man couldn't do it. This nearer relative could not redeem Ruth according to the law. When the law is easy to keep, well, that's usually when it benefits us. But when the law is impossible or seems impossible to keep, then it's a burden to us. Can I give you a modern application of this? Think about traffic laws for a moment. There is a traffic law that says, thou shall not run a red light. 
And that law is pretty easy to keep. I don't know about you, but for me, it's pretty easy to keep that law to not run a red light. Why? Because there's a lot of benefits for me stopping at a red light. First of all, I don't get a ticket. Second of all, if I were to get around the cars and run a red light, I would get T-boned or I'd T-bone someone else and there'd be a great amount of loss for me. I would lose my property, my car, maybe my license, and maybe even my own life. I'd maybe take someone's life by driving foolishly, by breaking the law. So law is easy to keep when it benefits me. Let's compare that to another traffic law, shall we? There is a traffic law that says, thou shalt not speed. (laughs) And does that help me? Well, sometimes. But most of the time, following that law, that is a burden to me. And it's impossible to keep. It seems so difficult to actually drive 25 in a 25. It seems so hard to drive 55 in a 55. So what do I do? What do most of us do? We drive maybe five over, maybe seven over. Some of us who live on the edge, we drive maybe 10 or more over the speed limit because that doesn't help us. It burdens us to have to drive that time. Do you know how much longer our trips would take if we actually drove the speed limit? Or so we think. And so, because the law burdens us, it's impossible to keep. I hate to bring up more legal terms, but am I being too judgmental? Am I being too judgmental on this near redeemer? I mean, after all, it's kind of practical. He's only looking out for his family. He's only looking out for his potential estate. Makes sense, right? Well, if you think that I've been a little harsh, if you think that I've been judgmental on this near redeemer, wait till you see the judgment that scripture passes on him. The author of Ruth, the narrator of Ruth, does something completely uncharacteristic. You've read it before, but but maybe it slipped your attention. The NIV translates Boaz's invitation to the near redeemer in this way. He says, come over here, my friend. And the reality is, open up any English Bible and it's going to say that. Boaz is going to invite his, his nearer redeemer, his friend, to come over and sit down. But it doesn't say, my friend. That's not what Boaz said. That's not what the Hebrew says. In fact, the original language, the Hebrew language here has has. Boaz saying this. He says, come over here, Mr. So-and-so. He says in Hebrew, come over here, Mr. Poloni Halmoni. Come over here and sit down. Literally, Poloni Halmoni, it means come over here, you someone. Did Did Boaz really say that? I guarantee you he did not. First of all, Boaz knew his name. He was his relative. Second of all, this is the court of law. This is the way things were done. Boaz was taking this very seriously. He would not have just interjected, hey, come over here, you Mr. So-and-so. No, what the narrator does here, what the author to Ruth does, is add a gloss in order to teach us something, in order to tell us something about this man. He calls him Mr. So-and-so. In the same way marketers try to tell us something about their product by, by calling a cleaning product Mr. Clean, the narrator wants us to learn something about this man. But what? 
what the narrator wants us to see. And what he is clearly saying is that this dude is nameless. This dude is faceless because this man has been spineless because of his failure to be selfless and do what the law says. The law is impossible to keep when it burdens us. And it burdened him, so he was out. He was done. He could have, but he chose not to. And so the narrator wants you to know that this man is not getting a name. This man, he's going to be forgotten. It's easy when we listen to this to point fingers at him, isn't it? We point fingers right at him and say, that was weak. And yet the saying holds true. When you point a finger, you have three pointing back at you. In other words, there's a reason, another reason why the narrator calls him Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Someone. It's because he's an everyone. He stands in the place of every single one of us. We all do the math. You do the math every single day, just like Mr. So-and-so. We're all a Mr. So-and-so. We look at the law, God's law, and we love it. We love God's law. We love our to-do list. We love to keep the laws that God makes. That is, when it benefits us. When in the presence of our peers, it makes us look pious. Of course we keep God's law. And we love to let people know that we keep God's law. We say, of course, I'm not a drunk. I don't do that. I don't break that law. I'm not violent. I'm not a racist. I don't cheat. I don't abuse other people. I keep God's law. But you and I know. There are laws that are impossible to keep, or at least seem impossible to keep. And those laws are burdensome. You know that those laws exist, and you know they exist for the very reason that you wish they didn't exist. You know those laws. I don't even have to tell them to you. It's the laws that you think are outdated. It's God's laws that you look at and you say, yes, I understand the intent, the general idea of that law, but it doesn't really apply to me. It's the laws that you look at and you say, you know what? That one's stifling. That law doesn't let me do me. And so we don't follow those laws. It's those laws that we look at and we say they're impossible to keep because they're burdensome. And scripture says we break them all. James chapter 2 says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet just breaks it at one point, they're guilty of breaking all of it. Romans 3 goes on and adds to it and says there's no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's not one person, man, woman, or child, who keeps God's law. And so it's true. Because of our sinful nature, the law burdens us. God's law burdens us. And why? Because every bit of it is impossible to keep. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see here. That we cannot keep God's law. And because Mr. So-and-so was unredeemable and unredeeming, 
you and I are just as unredeeming and unredeemable. No more is that apparent when you see Mr. So-and-so standing right next to Boaz. Boaz steps up. Boaz mans up. Boaz did a thing even though it cost him. Oh, don't trick yourself here. This is not a romantic love story where Boaz gets the girl. Boaz wasn't marrying for the feel-good, bubbly sort of love. Oh, don't get me wrong. Boaz cared. Boaz cared a whole lot about Ruth, about Naomi, but he wasn't marrying Ruth for Ruth. Boaz said it himself. Look, Boaz says in verse 10 of Ruth 4, I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Boaz wasn't marrying for love. Boaz wasn't marrying for romance. Boaz wasn't marrying Ruth so that he could ride off into the sunset with her. Why was Boaz marrying Ruth? Because that's what the law said. Boaz was marrying Ruth even though it would cost him. Because think about it. The same thing that applied to the near redeemer applied to Boaz. Boaz was going to marry Ruth. Boaz did marry Ruth. And if they had a baby boy, if they had a male son, guess who was going to get that land? Not Boaz. Guess what was going to happen to Boaz's land? It was going to go to that baby boy. This was not a win-win for Boaz. This was a lose-lose for Boaz, and yet he did it anyways. He manned up. He fulfilled the law. In fact, he went above and beyond the law. Why? Because this, this is ultimately what this scripture is all about. And in, in a greater way, this is what all of scripture is about. It's about a higher love. It is about a commitment, a commitment that goes beyond mere earthly commitments to man and woman, husband and wife. This goes even deeper, a deeper romance, a higher love. There's something here that hits at the very will of God. Why did Boaz marry Ruth? It was so that a dead man could live on, on his own land. Why did Boaz do it? It was so that the law could be fulfilled, so that he could go above and beyond the law. It wasn't for love. It wasn't for romance. It was because of a match made in heaven. And now I'm not talking about Ruth and Boaz. I'm talking about you and me and our Redeemer who lives. Don't you see it? Don't you see, this is what this scripture is all about. This is why the Holy Spirit spent so much time laying down the legalities of this marriage, the legal consequences of what was happening here. This is why your pastor took so long to explain to you what was going on legally in Ruth chapter 4. It's because he wanted to see this, your redemption, our redemption, everything that the New Testament talks about in regards to your redemption in mind, the fact that Jesus Christ is your redeemer, it all is built upon the Old Testament. Behind every single one of these words is Jesus Christ. 
Yes, you see Boaz man up and redeem Ruth, but see the man up on the cross who redeems you. We're all Mr. So-and-sos. We are all debtors who need a redemption. We are all people who are helpless in and of ourselves, nameless, faceless, and ready to be written off the face of this earth with no end to our name until the author of life steps in and writes himself into the story, writes his son into the story, his son who did what? who kept the law perfectly, who more than that fulfilled in us all righteous requirements of the law and went a step further, actually married himself to us, calls himself the bridegroom, calls you church his bride and weds himself to you. Why? So that your name can live on. So that your name can live on in the book of life. Yes, yes, we see here Boaz man up and redeem Ruth, but see Jesus Christ behind every one of these words. See the man upon the cross redeem you. That's what this is all about. This is about a romance, an intimacy, much deeper than anything that this world knows. This is about a love, a love that goes much higher than any kind of love that this world has ever seen. This is about your Redeemer. This is about your Redeemer and mine purchasing the land, the land, the eternal inheritance that was his and giving it all, giving it all away to you at cost, no, not to you, at great cost to himself. Do you see the practical implications of this? of seeing yourself in this story and, and, and seeing yourself in this story in the right place. You know, you see yourself as Mr. So-and-so. You see yourself as, as someone who does, who does law things, who, who keeps the law, who, who loves checklists in order to, why? Have security, have comfort, have more, have enough in life. And where does that get us? If you look to the things that you do, if you look to yourself to always be enough, you're never going to know comfort. You're never going to know peace. You're never going to know security. Why? Because you can't keep the law. It always leaves you empty. It always leaves you looking for more. There is one thing and one thing alone that fulfills you, that fulfills the entirety of the law and gives to you. And it comes from outside of you. It is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's his suffering and his death that paid the debt for you to be with God, for you to have the name that is your name, sons and daughters of God, for you to no longer be outside of God's family, but for you to be brought in to God's family. That's what it did. And that's what the gospel always does. The gospel always points you outside of yourself to someone else. You're not the hero. You're not the hero of your life. You're not the hero of your story. There is no hero within. What the gospel always does is points us to a hero without, a hero who comes outside of us, a hero who saves that's not us. If you need any, any more proof of that, well, just look at, to this text. And let me ask you, where's Ruth? Where's Ruth when the legal proceedings went down? Where's Ruth at her own wedding? 
He's not even there. He's back at home. Where's Naomi? Naomi who started off this story and and we saw her just be completely emptied. Where's she when she gets filled back up? She's not there. Do you see this? Do you see what this is talking about? This is talking about your redemption and mine. Where were you when the legal proceedings went down? Where were you? You were but a twinkle in your heavenly father's eye. You weren't even born. There was one person. There was one person who was there. There was one person who, like a lamb before the slaughter, went silently, willingly, and went all for you to shed his blood, to spend his life so that you might have it all, so that you might receive from Christ redemption. Redemption from yourself. Redemption from our efforts at trying to keep the law and fulfill the law. That's what we have. See that. See that here. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to see. He wants you to see behind every word of Scripture that your Redeemer lives. Your Redeemer lives, and that means you have new life. That means you have a new story. That means you have an inheritance in him. That means you have life, and your name will live on in him. It's because Christ came and shed his blood to buy back your land, to buy back heaven for you. That's what the story of Ruth is. It's your story. It's your story of redemption. Your story of redemption, yeah, even from yourself. That's the story of Christ in you. Amen.